Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. Good morning and welcome to Talking Therapy with my colleague, Alan Francis. Good morning, Alan. Usually you say your colleague and good friend. My colleague and long-term friend, okay? Long-term isn't as good as good, but go ahead. I could have said my old friend. <laughs> More accurate. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's somebody I enjoy talking to each week, and I hope you enjoy our conversations. And I'm Marvin Goldfrey, and today we are going to be talking about uh, a certain time frame within therapy, namely the future. When do we focus on the future in therapy? And uh, why don't you start, Alan, because you yeah, this is a topic, I, I think it's a topic that I've grown into with time and, and I um, appreciate more and more that we were saying last week that to be concerned about therapists who stick only in the past, because then they're missing the present and the treatment may have no impact on the present if you exclusively focus on the past, which is a risk factor in, in psychodynamic therapies. And that we also have concerns about therapies that focus only on the present because they're missing the opportunity to tie the present problems to the past. The past is never really completely absent in the present. And if you're not dealing with the present as a fulfillment of a pattern from the past, you're missing an opportunity. But we didn't discuss last week, what we left for this week was thinking about the future. Right. I have to admit that for a good part of my therapy practice, it wasn't something on my mind very much. But as I got more experience, I began to realize that there was a tremendous opportunity to talk more and more in therapy, not just about how the past influenced the present, not just about how current present symptoms could be dealt with in a more effective way, but also how everything fit into the future. And particularly did I find this valuable in relation to a concern I've always had about demoralization that many patients feel that the future is bleak, that the present will project into the future without relief. It's hard for them to picture a better future. And also by not focusing on the future, you're not helping the person to cope with it. And the therapy techniques that help people to understand that their current symptoms are not necessarily gonna be forever and that ways of dealing with the future problems they may likely have will reduce the risk of having those problems, and that there's hope in the future. Thinking about the future is, I think, by itself, hope-inducing. I think it's protective to 
prevent the kinds of triggers that cause symptoms. And it gives a sense of I can control things, which I don't think I can control. I can have goals in the future. I can work towards those goals. So I think that opening up the future as part of therapy is a very important thing that's ne largely neglected in training programs. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it, I totally agree with that, it's, uh, which is certainly not surprising since CBT focuses a lot on, uh, on the future. But the thing that I, I um, picked up on in what you said is that he said, on the basis of my experience in doing psychodynamic therapy, and I love that, because what that says is that you are not totally tied up and uh, wedded, in quotes, to your, to your theory, but are responsive to what you see clinically. And I think that, you know, is generically, I think that is very, very important. Are you surprised, Marvin? No, I'm not surprised. I'm happy. <laughs> no, I mean that's why we're talking. So because you were open, if you were, if you were um, closed-minded theorist, regardless of your theory, um, I wouldn't enjoy talking to you. Um, but, but there's a give and take, and I learned something, and hopefully you get something out of it, and, and hopefully our watchers and listeners get something uh, something out of it. I just wanted to, you know, un underscore that. Tell me how you work with the future, how it impacts your practice. Well, CBT, and, and I do mostly CBT, and, and but I add in other things as as needed. I add in relational type stuff where the focus is really on what's going on in the interaction, in the present, which a lot of CBT people just don't do. Um, and also experiential stuff. It's like what is going on emotionally in the current situation. Um, but to a great extent, CBT is about the future. So if we take a coping skill notion of cognitive behavior therapy, by definition, you're focusing on, on the future. Because what is coping? It's like helping the person learn skills to cope with various events in their life. And these things occur where? In the future. So it's built in as a... a Implicit, and, and you know, sometimes we get lost in the future as CBT therapists. Uh, I need to know more about the past. How much do you work on setting goals from the very beginning of the treatment? 100%, whenever I can. Would you care to elaborate on that? Yeah. Somebody comes in and they say, uh, well, you know, some of, the, some of the goals are very obvious. I'm having panic attacks and it's interfering with my life. Um, or I am avoiding doing certain kinds of things. So they want to deal with symptom reduction and the panic attacks, and they want to deal with the avoidant behavior uh, that may be interfering with their lives, neither work or, or relationships. So we do set goals at the very beginning. And I set a number of different goals, and some of them I set as kind of a back burner goal. An example would be panic attack. So we set the goal and we say, okay, you came here because you have panic attacks. And we have a way of having you learn how to cope with that panic, how to cope by breathing, how to cope in your mind, and how to 
deal with that. But often uh, having a panic attack is kind of a red flag that something's not going on right in your life. So why don't we first deal with the panic attack so that the symptoms are not interfering with your life? And then, if you like, what has been triggering this and what there is in your life that is problematic, which we don't explore at the, at the outset because they came for the symptom reduction. Yeah, that's exactly what I think good psychodynamic therapists do is focus at the beginning on the thing that's bothering the patient the most. But then once there's some sense of amelioration in the symptoms to see whether there are other goals, more ambitious goals beyond symptom relief, life goals. How much, how do you focus with life goals that go beyond symptom goals? Well, what is a life goal? What do you mean by life goal? Um, so symptom goal would be, I certainly would like to have fewer panic attacks the next week. Right. A life goal would be more like, I feel very stuck at work. Yes. And I haven't been able to achieve the things I think I could achieve, partly because I'm afraid of having panic attacks, partly because I'm a shy person. Yes. And if they say they want to work on that, then that becomes a goal. So the, the notion of goals is really decided on in a, in a mutual way. How do you decide when to go and with what kind of person to go beyond the symptom goal and toward the life goal? Well, it's pretty much part of what I do in the first few sessions of an assessment. Of it. And I ask about relationships and I ask about work and things like that. And is there anything in there that you might want to change that we can come back to and put on a back burner and discuss. So I try to do uh, what uh, Sullivan called, what do you call it in his psychiatric the reconnaissance work. You first go and you get a bigger picture of what's going on, and then you focus in more on, on detail. I think we agree completely in what we do. Uh, the, at the beginning, in the work with the person, we're exploring very much what the complaint is, the chief complaint, and the triggers to that reason they're coming in now, and focusing very much on the current situation. Yeah. And obviously, one obvious goal is going to be to help with that situation. But we'll also be taking into account how the symptoms have affected the person's life detrimentally, and also areas of life that may be a problem that go beyond just the symptom presentation. And that you, would you call reconnaissance that in the initial formulation, the initial work with the individual about their symptoms, we're also pursuing future goals that may be beyond the symptoms. Now, is that psychodynamic or is that you? That's us. Uh, when you say us, what do you mean? Anyone with common sense. Oh, regardless of orientation. Yeah. Okay. What about, well, let me ask you a question. Working through, I'm not quite sure I 100% understand what that is. And that, that's future-oriented. Say, say it again, I missed that. Working through. Oh, working, the concept of working through? Yeah, yeah. Is that symptom, is that future-oriented? Yeah, I think the, the, the concept is that insight by itself doesn't cure stuff, that you also have to have experience, the corrective emotional experience that we've discussed. 
and that this can happen in the treatment, but it's even more important in the long run that it happened in the person's life. And part of what makes, and this is a very interesting other thing to discuss, that in relation to termination, whether the termination is after one session or 10 or two years of sessions, there has to be some preparation for how what we've done here will impact your future life. Right. Uh, in, in some places, it's called, re, in some situations, it's called uh, relapse prevention. Yes. It, it's trying to figure out hardening the target. It's trying to figure out ways in which what we've done together here in the current part of your life can be used and applied for the future. You're not going to come back to treatment every time you have a problem. Mm-hmm. Whatever you learned here has to somehow or other become part of you, part of your coping skills, part of your ways of understanding yourself in the world, the ways of modulating your feelings for the future. So working through would be, we're not just going to explain something and you're going to get better. We're going to work together to understand the what's what's causing the dynamics of the situation, the triggers of the situation, you're going to have to have experiences that make this more a part of you, not just an intellectual insight. And then you're going to have to work together to see how this applies to your future, to help to predict the future in order to change it. Right. So it's like we're going to look at instances of an ongoing theme that we've dealt with in therapy so that you can react differently based on what you understand about yourself. So that is very, it is very much true. Exactly. And, and, and the, you know, a person at whatever point of life they're in, there are certain fairly predictable stresses they'll have, partly by virtue of who they are, partly by virtue of where they are in their lives, their context, the people who are supports or stresses in their life. It, it's not possible. Ever, it's hard, as Yogi Berra said, it's hard to predict the future. But um, it's important to try to figure out what are the most likely difficulties a person will have after leaving treatment yes. and to have the, the, the um, opportunity before the treatment ends to do some sort of preparation that will help them to be better armed for the stresses they'll have in the future. Well, you know, the, the, the notion of uh, the future in CBT and, and I say it's it's built into the uh, to the orientation. The whole concept of homework, a term that I hardly ever use with patients. I don't know how many people love to do homework. I, I talk about it as that as therapeutic risk taking between sessions, uh, rather than than homework or self therapy. But homework is, by definition, future-oriented. Yeah, I've had bad luck with homework in my career. I wasn't sure whether it's me, the way I'm doing it, or whether it's a more generic thing. I've understood from cognitive therapists, I know that it's not just me. No. But no. People no. Don't, don't do it, don't like doing it, don't like the name. Uh, very often, they'll do something else that's not exactly what we said, but turns out to be better. Yes. So I think it has to, if it is going to be homework, it has to be homework that the patient develops. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The uh, interesting thing is that that, um, Les Greenberg, who's very much experiential 
and, and the focus is on what's going on in the here and now emotionally. Uh, he and I have discussed the whole notion of the future and, and, and homework. And he says he doesn't do this. He said, the important thing is that the person become aware of their emotions. And once they become aware of their emotions, the emotion is the royal road to intention. I don't know if this is his exact word, but intention is a future-oriented kind of thing. And he says, we don't deal with the intention. We deal with the emotion, and the person comes up with the intention. And then that's it. It's like, don't push the river. It flows by itself. That's the philosophy. I really hate to do this, Marvin, but I think I also love doing it. That all sounds like jargon. Well, it certainly is jargon, yeah. Put that, put that into English. So, so he and I have had discussions, and I said, Leslie, you think it's cheating on your theory if you don't tell the person, here's a good idea, why don't you now act on that, or perhaps it would be good to, to speak to your significant other based on what you need. He said, the theory says you're not supposed to do it. And I said, well... That doesn't mean that it's right. And I was, over a period of time, able to convince him that it was not cheating. It was cheating on his theory, but not cheating therapeutically to make us... Go back and, and unpack this and explain it in simple language. In simple language is, the theory says, if you become aware, that's it. If you become aware of your emotions, then you become aware of what you need uh, what you want that you're not getting. And once you become aware of that, you go out and do it. But we don't talk about going out and doing. We only talk about awareness. Okay, that yeah. works. The, another interesting thing is um, psychodynamic therapists deal with the future all the time. And they give homework all the time, except they do it unconsciously. Now you're supposed to say, what do you mean by that? I was going to say, you look like the Delphic Oracle at this point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wise man, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Huh. Since you've climbed the mountain so far to ask the question, I'll be happy to give you the answer. Thank you. And that is when they say at the end of the session, well, this would be good for something for you to think about. That's homework. Mm-hmm. And that's future-oriented. So there is, but I, I don't think people who do this form of therapy would say they deal with the future. Yeah, another, another thing that comes up is, how, how does this interact with the duration of the therapy? Mm -hmm. So it's obvious that when you have a longer time with the patient, if you're seeing the person for a year, you have much more opportunity to discuss the future than if you're seeing them for 15 minutes in an emergency room setting. But I guess my feeling is that even in short contacts, we've mentioned before how I've had much more success with many people in the emergency room than I've had in psychotherapy because it's a very charged moment and people are listening in a different way and are more flexible than they might be if they're coming in for a treatment that they know will last a year. 
that even, even in fairly brief contacts, I've always tried to think of what can I say that will impact on this person's long-term future, not just the current moment. And what are your favorite options? What do you mean? What, what when you say you have to think of what you could say to help this person in the in the emergency room? What do you usually say? Can, well, it, it's not something I could say in a generic way because it's so specific to each individual. But I would be, be very comfortable telling people, based on what we've known from your past troubles, these are likely to be the problems you'll have in the future, and you're going to have to figure out different ways of dealing with them. Right. So there's, a, there's an optimism. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, and again, especially in, in more urgent settings, but in general, almost every patient is in some state of demoralization. We don't get to see people when they're looking optimistically about their future. But when you're trapped in the current pain of your of your um, symptoms, the future almost always looks bleak. And even if you're seeing a person very briefly in the emergency room, the fact you're able to discuss a future that's beyond the current pain, yeah. to point out that this is the worst day in their life and that they're going to get better from this, right. that that gives them a, a sense of hope and remoralization that might otherwise have been have been lost. So it's a real opportunity, I think, even in fairly brief contacts, brief treatments, to project a future that will extrapolate not from the current symptoms, but will likely be much better than what they're feeling now because this is a very rough patch in the person's okay. life. That is the generic advice. And the specific way you give it will, will depend on the circumstances exactly. and the individual. I have absolutely no ER experience whatsoever. However, um, in my usual work with patients, every once in a while, and sometimes at the beginning of therapy, they come in with a life, major life crisis where they are very, very stressed and they can't sleep, they can't eat, they're tense, they're mobile. And, and they think they're going crazy. So they attribute this not only to something within them that is very, very significant, but they also make an implicit pr prediction that this will go on forever. And my intervention is they're reacting exact emotionally and behaviorally exactly the way they're supposed to under the conditions. And that it will not, and that they probably are worrying that they're experiencing something they've never experienced before in their life and it will continue. But it won't continue. It's part of a life stressor, and it's temporary. Now, this is most poignant and most important with suicidal patients. So that almost by definition, every suicidal patient is seeing so bleak a future that continued life seems to be much worse than the, the prospect of getting rid of the pain now because it's too painful. And it, it, it really does feel too painful if you imagine your entire future is going to be suffering that pain. But I think being able to explore the fact that the suicidal symptoms in almost everyone have a beginning and will have an end, and that figuring out a way to deal with the current situation opens up a much brighter future than they can imagine. And, and trying to commit suicide to actually kill yourself makes it, it impossible for you to ever cure your problems. 
that decision is an eternal one, and you don't want to make an eternal decision on the basis of your very worst moment. And that we have to be very clear that your past has had better moments than now, your future will have better moments than now, that this is the worst point in your life, and you can't make it, you have to take suicide off the table because you can't make a decision about something so important based on the very worst moment in your life. Right, and we, we see that in, in the in Marshall Linehan's DBT, the focus on reasons for living. And that's very future-oriented, that the reasons for living aren't necessarily obvious to you at this moment, at your worst moment, but they will become more obvious to you as we go along and you get out of this you know, deep bunk that you're in. Yeah. And, and another place where it comes up a lot, uh, sexual uh, minorities, uh, LGBT people, uh, where they've just come out and things are really, really terrible. Uh, and the message that they need to get is that um, it will get better. So there's a focus on what's going on now, and I think an implicit prediction about the future. And that's what good therapy, I think, you know, needs to deal with, even though the person doesn't vocalize, I'm always going to be this way. It's a, probably a high probability. Yeah, I think, it, you know, like, one of the things that bothers me a lot is anyone ever saying to anyone else, you see this in movies all the time, it's going to be okay. We can never promise people it's going to be okay or that you're definitely going to get better, that that's too extreme. But we can say, based on vast experience, our, our own and the, the literature, that for most people, things get much better. That I wouldn't be seeing you today if this was not a very bad time in your life. And I can be very confident that things will be much better in the future than they are at this moment. Uh, maybe not perfect, maybe not even terrifically okay, but much better. And if we work towards the, uh, that brighter future, we will find it. And you can have this with a degree of confidence that varies with different diagnoses. I'm very confident treating people with panic disorder. So my experience treating, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of people with panic disorder, it gets better. And I will tell people, you know, I can pretty much guarantee that we do a few things together, we work on this, it's going to get better. Uh, that in itself is tremendously um, therapeutic. The sense of confidence where confidence is is warranted. I can't always say your marriage is going to get better. That that has a different dynamic. But there's certain things we know that tells us that the future will be much brighter than the present. It gives meaning to the term remoralization. Yep. Yeah. Jerome Frank fan, right? Very much so. Yeah. That was the most important book I ever read. You know, I have a I, persuasion I, I, of healing. You have a copy right there. No, I have a puppet, Sigmund Freud puppets. Have you seen any any Jerome Frank puppets or dolls? I'm going to look around. I'm going to look online and see if I can find one and send it to you. We should explain for the audience, many of whom may not have been born, most of whom probably weren't born when Jerome Frank wrote the book. He, Jerome Frank wrote a sort of magnificent epic book in 1961 called Persuasion and Healing. It's been reprinted in many different editions since then. It's as vivid and 
useful today as it was when it was written. It changed my career to read it in 1968. And I think anyone who reads this book will will feel differently about themselves as a therapist, understand more of what their role is, and actually also be, I think, much more optimistic about the influence they can have on people. So it's called Persuasion and Healing. Jerome Frank, his daughter, was involved in some of the uh, revisions of it. But you can get the first book written. If you can get it for 25 cents on the internet, do it, because it's just as good as all the revisions. Well, we're coming toward the end, and this is kind of interesting because you know the the notion we started off with the notion of time frame, and we've done one on the past and we've done one on the future, and I began to think more and more that the whole notion of time frame is very very useful to the therapist because different time frames are relevant for different problems, different phases of therapy, and it's good. If you, it's a proxy for so many other things that go on in therapy. And there's a handful of time frames, right? Is it this? It sounds to me like you want to make that our source of uh, beginning discussion next week. Okay. I mean, yeah, time frame. How is time frame a proxy for everything you do in therapy? Because everything you do in therapy, I think, has a time frame. Okay, I don't know at all what you mean, but I'm ready to learn next week. Sounds good. Okay, take care, man. Stay safe. Have a good week. Bye-bye. We're dividing into time frames, one week.